The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. By popular demand, it's Ask Me Anything Part 2. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, biblical scholar and cultural commentator, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. Call 866-34-TRUTH to get on The Line of Fire. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Hey friends, Michael Brown back here. We're going to continue what we did yesterday. I hope you enjoyed it. We just got so many questions, so many People want to ask different things. We're, we're going to go over to Twitter today and grab some questions on, on a wide, wide range of subjects. Okay, so let me just give you a little orientation. Uh, Monday, we, we talked about the elections and Christians and politics. And then we've, we've got a couple, of, did a couple of Ask Me Anything programs yesterday, today. Tomorrow, we're going to take you into a debate, basically play the whole of the opening statements and the rebuttals with Rabbi Shmuley and I over a decade ago. Uh, did Jesus die for our sins? Of whom does Isaiah 53 speak? Yeah, we're going to give you almost no commentary from me and just boom, you'll get to enjoy that. Friday, as always, we'll be here to take your calls live. And then next week, with the elections coming, God willing, we'll start on Monday, really talking about the, the implications, Tuesday, Election Day. Wednesday talking through what's happened after. So we'll, we'll get into that a lot, but just focusing on it now is not going to change anything. You know what I'm saying? One of the issues that we have, and I address in my book, The Political Seduction of the Church, is how we get caught up with election fever. We, notice I didn't say you, hopefully you are not me, but we often get caught up with election fever and every day checking the polls and what's happening here. And, and it actually doesn't affect anything. In other words, we can only vote once. Whatever influence we're having to, if we want to get people to vote a certain way, we think that's important. We're doing that, right? But what's going to happen is election day happens and then the day after and, and then the implications. So we're taking a little break from that. All right. I know it's in the news constantly. Just keep reading what I'm writing. Latest articles always, uh, askdrbrown.org. They're posted there every day. Stream.org posted there. So take advantage of what's out there. All right. Back to the questions. We're over on Twitter now. Lior, I've heard some rabbi argue that the original Jewish followers of Jesus were the Ebionites. Is there some truth to that? What material would you recommend reading on this issue? I would recommend the book by Ray Pritz. Came out in 92, but to me, it's, it's a solid book that has withstood the test of time. Ray Pritz, Nazarene Jewish Christianity from the end of the New Testament period until its disappearance in the fourth century. Now, some claim the disappearance is even later, 6th century. Uh, but in any case, you've got hundreds of years of church history, a period of time like as, as, as long as the history of the nation of America, where you had identifiable Jewish believers in Jesus living as Jews, as you have today. So Nazarene Jewish Christianity by Ray Pritz. Highly recommend it. His argument is, that although you had these different groups, the Ebionites, one of them, the Corinthians, not Corinthians, but Corinthians with an E, and then the Nazarenes, that the ones who were the authentic disciples and held to the fundamentals that, that Paul and Peter and John taught and that they, they learned from Jesus directly or by revelation, that those are the Nazarenes, that the Ebionites denied certain fundamentals of the gospel and we'd be considered heretical. And the same with the Corinthians. So in point of fact, there were different groups 
of people professing to be Christians, Gentile and Jewish, and some of them were heretical. The Ebionites went heretical. The Corinthians went heretical. But the ones that were the authentic ones from what we can retrace and find and see what the church leaders said about them were the Nazarenes. And, and some of the early church leaders, by the time you get to the third or fourth century, they don't, they don't know what to make of them because they hold to Orthodox doctrine, but they continue to live as Jews, which is just what Paul and, and the apostles did. So they would be the authentic ones. All right. Hearts revering Christ. Do you believe that Christians can be possessed by a demon? Why or why not? And do you think the current deliverance ministry is vital to the church and sharing the gospel? Or would you say it is a distraction? I'd love to hear your thoughts on the topic. Okay. When you speak of the current deliverance ministry, I don't know who you're speaking of specifically, right? There's a lot of stuff out there. I can only say that deliverance ministry is is getting a lot more attention than I can remember in decades. People talking about it, people practicing it, what's healthy, what's an extreme. I'd have to look at each situation, all right? And I've only been focusing on this a little bit recently because it's coming up so much. Now to your specific question, I do not believe a Christian can be possessed by a demon and that that demon now owns that person and controls that person. In that case, Jesus is not the Lord of that person in any way. Do I believe that a Christian can be terribly oppressed by a demon? Yes. Is there any way that a Christian could be inhabited by a demon? That to me is where the great debate is. What do we mean inhabited? Can a demon dwell in the same part of a human being side by side with the Holy Spirit? No. But think of Luke 13 with the woman who was a daughter of Abraham, so a Jewish woman, who was bound by a spirit for 18 years, which Jesus identifies as Satan. So a satanic spirit, a demon, binding her, causing her to be crippled, and he puts his hands on her, and, and looses her and she's healed. In other cases, demons leave people and they can speak or they could hear, whereas before they couldn't. So can a demon infiltrate a believer's life and somehow get in? Yes. What are they in? Are they in the person's body, the person's mind? That's where the debate is. But they can be driven out because they're somewhere they don't belong, whether it's even a, a, around that person. You know, I, I once asked a question when I taught about angels, demons, and deliverance in the 80s, in the early 90s. I said, when you put headphones on and listen to music, is the music inside of you or not? And people actually debated whether it was or not. It's one of these ambiguous things. So I know people, solid, godly people, sober-minded people who are not demon-focused, who have told me about driving demons out of believers, and about the eyes, the color of the eyes changed, the voice changed, all the, you know, the person shook and collapsed and, and the demon left and the person was set free and they were believers and the demon was speaking through them. But was it just influencing them in a certain way? Was it in their mind? That's the debatable part. Can they be possessed in terms of under the control of a demon so they are not under the control of Jesus? No, not if they're saved. That can happen to an unsaved person. Not a safe person. Can a safe person come under bondage to demons where they need to be set free? Absolutely. Should there be more deliverance? Yes, because demons are here. They haven't gone anywhere. And, and people in the world, when they get saved, some of them will need deliverance. And some believers 
will need deliverance at different times. It should never be the case with a believer, but we can't open the door to demons. As to current deliverance ministry, I'm sure there's some dangerous extremes and some good things happening. I, I just have to know what you're speaking of and then analyze it and look and, and look at it scripturally. Last point. Ultimately, we base our doctrine on scripture, not on experience. So the experience can be interesting or corroborating, but we base our doctrine on scripture, not on experience. All right. Lamasu, with the Messiah being called the Lord, our righteousness, make him, while not at least, well, not fully at least divine, as the divine nature is elsewhere only applied to places blessed by God's presence or even a theophany. Okay. So let me explain Lamasu's question here. So in Jeremiah, the 23rd chapter, the Messiah is called Yahweh Tzidkenu, which can either be translated, the Lord is our righteousness or the Lord our righteousness. On the other hand, in Jeremiah 33, it's the city of Jerusalem that will have that title, Adonai Tzidkenu, the Lord our righteousness or the Lord is our righteousness. Does that mean the city is divine? Well, then the answer would be, that no human being has the full divine name as part of the name, whereas it could be different with the city, etc. So my take when I went through this in Jeremiah is it, it does not point to full divinity. We cannot use this to say that this demonstrates the Messiah is divine. We can say that it points to an aspect of divinity because he is so closely associated with Yahweh, even having that as part of the name by which he is called, that would be unprecedented for a human being. Otherwise, it's always an abbreviation or shorter form, what's called a, a theophoric or a theophoric hypocoristicon. Sorry for the technical word, but got to use some of my old education here, right? That, that it's like Eliyahu, my God is Yahoo, short for Yahweh, right? So it's significant, but I agree with you. It points partly, but not fully to his deity. Uh, Esme Vander Mirve, which kind come out through prayer and fasting? What category would they fall in? Would that be mental disorders or anything that affects the brain? What makes the kind uh, so prayer and fasting is required? All right, so we know in the the case that's recounted most famously in Mark nine, but also in 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 uh, Matthew seventeen and Luke nine, there is the delivering deliverance of the boy. The disciples can't drive the demon out. It's been tearing at him and, and it would look like epileptic seizures to us, you know, the way it's described. And the disciples can't drive out. Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, Jacob, and John comes down from there. And why couldn't we drive him out? He says, well, this kind only comes out by prayer or in some later manuscripts by prayer and fasting. All right. We don't know specifically specific categories that only come out in this way. And in other words, that they were not sufficiently in prayer or prayer and fasting, that they were not sufficiently in faith because of it. Uh, there are times that I've been involved in praying for someone to be set free and coming together to bring deliverance to that person where it was hours and hours. I remember the, the most notable one in a tribal region in India that was, that was tremendous in terms of what happened. But it was hours and we would pray and someone would be rebuking the enemy in Jesus name. And then others would be praying and we'd alter it. Why did it take so long? I don't know, but that's what happened. That's what happened. In other cases, it's been a period of, of months of trying to get a breakthrough in someone's life. And before the breakthrough actually comes, 
Uh, if we were walking in the fullness of the spirit and the fullness of anointing and the perfection of Jesus, then it would be instant all the time. But there's no category. You can't say, well, those that are, appear to be mental illness or affect this or affect that. And of course, not everything is a demon. We understand that. There is genuine mental illness. There is genuine physical illness. And it's not all a direct demon that has to be cast out. Although there's often an intersection between demonic attack and physical sickness and mental sickness and things like that. That's why they're so constantly joined together in, in the Gospels. But no, there's no specific category. And it's just got to be, okay, when it's in this category, it's prayer and fasting. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to the broadcast. Michael Brown here with a friendly reminder. Download the app if you haven't yet. Ask Dr. Brown, A-S-K-D-R Brown Ministries. There's an old, you say, no, I already have it on Android. That's the old one that, that's being discontinued. What you want is Ask Dr. Brown Ministries, ASKDR Brown Ministries, and Apple. We finally have it out on Apple. It is, it is a rich app. It is super practical. Miss a radio broadcast? Click on it. Go ahead and listen. Want to listen live? You're driving your car. You're out of range where we have a radio show. Boom. Click on it. Listen. Why oh, did I miss any articles? There it is. Boy, I want to, I want to explore some, some of the Jewish issues. Click on there. Real Messiah. Where are those videos, those animated videos, kind of like Prager You Consider this, but right there, right at your fingertips. I'd like to make a contribution to help your work, Dr. Brown. Click right there. Do it. In fact, we welcome that. This is how we're doing what we're doing today because people like you give and support our work. Um, Jesse, more of a personal question. Someone told me G.K. Chesterton did not say, do not be so open-minded that your brains fall out. I love this quote. But this person said Chesterton Society confirms, but you say Chesterton said this. So I'm confused. I want to trust you. Hey, Jesse, thanks for asking and thanks for wanting to trust. I was not aware that the quote was disputed. Many times what it is is the form that's disputed. In other words, when you say, did this person really say this? Well, he said something close to it and it became popularized like this. Or he wrote this and then it got repeated and it got changed and modified. That does happen, and I've I've been guilty of quoting something that I heard quoted for years that you see always with a picture of the of the author and a quote, and then someone's challenged me on it. It's only happened a couple times, thankfully, uh, or a, a few a few times, maybe just not two, but a few over many many years that someone will say, "Hey, I don't think that's accurate," and then you go dig. It's like, oh, okay. It's not exactly in that form. He said it slightly differently or this got attributed to him somehow. somehow. And then, of course, we corrected. So I wasn't aware that was challenged and, until until your quote. So what what you would do. All right. So I'm, I'm just going to grab this here. And this is this is what I would do here. All right. I just type in did Chesterton. Of course, when I'm going to type fast now, I'm making endless typos. Did Chesterton really say Then I type that in? Quote investigator just comes up immediately. Um, let's see. Uh, okay, so this is apparently what he did say. All right. Um, he said, cursed is he that does not know when to shut his mind. An open mind is all very well in its way, but it ought not to be so open that there's no keeping anything in or out of it. It should be capable of shutting its doors sometimes or it may be found a little drafty. Okay, so 
Someone says this, the saying has often been attributed to the notable writer G.K. Chesterton, but QI believes that this is faulty description was based on misremembering the words of Chesterton. Uh, he said this, I opened my intellect, this opened my mouth in order to shut it again on something solid. And anyway, just, just dig in there. There are other things he said that are apparently close to it and not that exactly, but the same sentiment. That's what normally happens. Like I, I, I quoted Winston Churchill who said that appeasement is like feeding a crocodile and hoping that it doesn't eat you last. And this is, well, there are different forms of it. And he said, this is very close. So that's what generally happens. It's the rarest of rare that I found that has no basis whatsoever and cannot be traced back to the person in any way. Normally it just morphed a little, but dig, see what you find out and, and let us know. Uh, Tony, what is your opinion about the chosen TV series? I've only seen a few episodes. I'm really glad it was made. It has rekindled an interest in the gospels and in the person of Jesus and is done in a way that is seeking to be God glorifying as opposed to an attack on the faith. And obviously it's been widely watched by believers as well as non-believers. That's really positive. Uh, my former personal assistant for many years, Dylan, really enjoyed, especially the first year. And he's got kids ranging you know, from teenage to, to younger kids. I'm sure the family enjoyed it together. I get hung up because the moment I see an inaccuracy, I, I get bothered. So I'm not your average viewer. Uh, I see, okay, here's something. History, you got a guy like wearing a yarmulke. It's like, okay, they wear those at that time. And, you know, why do you have, and so, or, okay, here's the biblical account. It varied slightly. It's, oh, so sometimes I don't enjoy it as much as others might enjoy it, but I'm really glad it was made. I'm sure it's touching many people. I just haven't watched enough of it to say if this bothers me or that bothers me. But overall, to me, it's a real positive based on what I've seen, the little I've seen, and everything that I've heard. All right, James 3.13. Have you had a chance to read Dr. Josh Bowen's uh, book, someone who you've had on your show, The Atheist Handbook to the Old Testament, Volume 1? If so, what were your thoughts? One of the most moving interviews I had was having James on where he spoke openly about his loss of faith and how much he would love to get it back and love to know that he'll see the baby that he and his wife lost, see him again in the world to come, but he doesn't know that there's going to be a world to come. It was, it was very touching, very moving. And if you haven't listened to it, just go to our YouTube channel, ASKDR Brown, Ask Dr. Brown, and search for Bowen, B-O-W-E-N. And we, we stay in touch on and off. I, I mean, a few times here and there, we, we've been back in touch after the show, always in the most cordial way, even spoken by phone. Um, interesting, you asked me, because probably a day before I asked for questions and you posted the question, I happened to see his book uh, stacked with some other books that I had put aside because I, I was out of room uh, on my bookshelves. I, I did read parts of it. And what I'd say is simply this. He raises really good questions, and he's certainly a Semitic and Old Testament scholar with the know-how to do it, but there are answers for the problems presented. In other words, it's not like a hit piece, aggressive, tear up the Bible with hostility kind of book. It's based on good research, 
but there are lots of answers that are plausible that are not that are not just grasping at straws. I, I talked to a gentleman who got his PhD in archaeology at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Hope to have him on our radio show to talk about his research on Jesus as a carpenter and builder. Uh, so I asked him who he studied under his principal mentor, and he mentioned the man's name to me. So famous. Israeli archaeologist, biblical archaeologist, respected for his research worldwide, uh, but very much not a believer. And I asked him, you know, what it was like studying under him is basically he has his presuppositions. In other words, he has, he has his blind spots like we have ours. So I could see how reading Josh's book might trouble folks and they'd wonder what is it reliable or not. But then you just dig, is the Old Testament reliable or not? But there's so much supporting evidence that th- that overwhelms. And then, of course, our experience of God in our own lives. So you know the Lord's changed your life. You know God's true to his word, but now you have questions about the Bible. There are answers. Uh, one book I, I often point people to is Kenneth Kitchen. He was one of the premier Egyptologists of this in the last generation, Kenneth A. Kitchen. And he wrote a book, about 500 pages, called On the Reliability of the Old Testament. So here you get a perspective by one of the world's foremost respected Egyptologists, famous for his work on the third intermediate period. Like that's kitchen, that's what you think of, the third intermediate period. And I'm no Egyptologist at at all. I'm just, you know, he's that well known in that field. So you you get other books like that, and, and you can be confident that there are answers here and there. Yeah. Not sure how to reconcile that, but so many cases, good answer here, a good answer here. So it's not that Josh is being unfair. It's just, he's got his perspective and his biases like everyone else. They're really good, solid answers. And let's continue to pray for him. Uh, Michael, what is your take on partial preterism or could you lead me to the truth? It seems very compelling. I strongly reject partial preterism. I categorically reject full preterism, which says that Jesus has already returned because it's spiritual, that our resurrection is spiritual, that we are already in the new Jerusalem. I categorically reject that. And in some fundamental ways, it is heretical. Why do I reject partial preterism? Because partial preterism takes text after text after text clearly pointing to a future return of Jesus that has not yet happened and clearly pointing to that being when we are raised up together to meet him. That takes so many of these texts, even texts like Second Peter 3, which talk about the, the, the end of heaven and earth as we know it, renovation by fire, new heavens and new earth in conjunction with the return of Jesus and try to say that's already happened, like, like Dr. Gary DeMar would that you are you are just taking away the massive amount of of what all the early church looked at as a future event. You will not find partial preterism among the early church leaders. You won't you'll you'll find an expectation that we'll go through difficult times, there'll be an antichrist figure, the Lord will return, you'll find expectation of a thousand year kingdom on the earth, you'll find expectation of a restoration of Israel. You will not find partial preterism, let alone full preterism. So if you want to go, you know, you have to ask why wasn't it there for centuries? And those that try to say oh, a little bit here, a little bit there, it's it's a, it's a it, you're you're going not just against the tide, you're going against the flood to try to argue for that. All right. So 
all these texts that when you first read them, they sound like they're talking about a future second coming that has not yet taken place. Now those all become texts that, about something that took place in the year 70. It magnifies what happened in the year 70 massively, massively beyond scriptural proportion, as big as that day was, especially for the rest of the world. And then the big thing, it cuts off God's promises to Israel. It now makes God into a liar, the one who covenantally said, no matter what happens, I will keep my promise to you and preserve you as a people to the end. And that is now gone. Israel forfeited its rights over individual Jews can be saved. But the land of Israel today, the people of Israel today, no prophetic significance, major serious error. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on The Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on this second edition this week of Ask Me Anything. If you missed our broadcast on Monday talking about politics, the elections, the church, go back and listen to that. Watch that. And again, just on the Ask Director Brown app, you miss any broadcast, just click on it and go back to the previous broadcast. There it is. Then, uh, God willing, next week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, with the elections at hand, and aftermath of the elections, we'll, we'll talk about that, the implications, and again, the role of the believer in the church. If you've not yet read my book, The Political Seduction of the Church, How Millions of Americans Have Confused Politics with the Gospel, by all means, get yourself a copy in paperback or in ebook form. Susan, thoughts on Kanye and anti-Semitism. Listen to my broadcast from last Thursday. Talked about that, the opening 13 minutes. Uh, Florida line. What does it mean to be in the image of God? So in Hebrew, it's betsalmenu kidmutenu, in our uh, image according to our likeness. And the word selim there, that first word can be used for a physical image. Don't make it selim of anything that represents God. In other words, an idol, a physical image. So some think that being created in the image of God uh, means one thing and his likeness means something else. As if in his image that we're created to look like God. In other words, that this, this body as opposed to a dog or an elephant or a giraffe is, is what God Looks like others say, well, if he's spirit, he doesn't have a look. Well, let, let's just put that part aside and let's put what we do know to be the emphasis, right? That in his selim, in his demut, in his image and likeness means to be like him in a unique way. We, as opposed to the animal world, have the capacity to love and hate. We have the capacity to make moral choices. We have the capacity, we, we have consciousness in a way that the animal world does not. So created in God's image with a certain moral bearing written on our souls, with an understanding that there is something called right and something called wrong, with an understanding of there is a conscience, with with the ability, as I say, to love and hate and make these moral choices, we are uniquely like God. We can also create in ways that other species and beings cannot create. I don't know if the angels can create the way we create you know we from writing music to to art to discovery and invention and also there is a rulership and an authority that god has put in us to take dominion over the the physical world and then to take spiritual dominion we don't take dominion over other people's lives but to take spiritual dominion through the cross 
This is part of being created in the image and likeness of God. Even our maleness and femaleness is part of that as well. To understand better the male-female part, check out the documentary that I had the privilege of hosting for American Family Studios, In His Image. You can watch it at inhisimage.movie or just search on YouTube, In His Image, the movie. It's about an hour, 40 minutes long, but really enlightening. It touches on lots of other things, gay, transgender issues, those kinds of things, but in it, a lot of good teaching about what it means to create, be created in the image of God. That's called In His Image. Um, Cedric, was Cyrus the Great a type and shadow of Christ, even though he was pagan? No, he was not a type and shadow of Christ. He was simply a ruler used by God to do good to the Jewish people and to rebuild Jerusalem, despite him not knowing God and being a polytheist who worshipped other gods. But no, I don't see him as a type of Christ in, in any way nor do I see him as presented like that, that I'm supposed to get that image from Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45. Uh, Jay Stan, sincere question, Dr. Brown. We know God preordains good stuff, but does he preordain the bad stuff, the shakings? We know he prophesied it. Thanks. I do not believe, based on scripture, that God preordains every single thing that happens in this world. All right, that right now when I just scratch my head, those watching see that. I don't believe that God preordained before the foundation of the world that at that moment I would scratch my head or say these particular words or answer these particular questions this day. I believe that God preordained ultimately the events of human salvation. So working in the midst of human beings that are making choices every day, he has the wisdom to carry out his will, Ephesians 1 that he is working in all things to carry out his purposes. So I see that as as happening. I see that God preordained that he would have a people in his son and this people would ultimately have this destiny. That's clearly there. I see that there are the, the large narratives that tie in with the plan of God being preordained. But again, not preordained in a way that will force someone to do something they didn't intend to do as much as either God giving people over to their choices or God working with who is here in the world at a given time and then bringing about his purposes as to how that all works out. In other words, his sovereignty is so far beyond anything we could comprehend that for me to even explain it falls short. Now, clearly, there are things that God says, this only happened because I did it, all right? Now, why did he do it, though? Did he do it because he preordained I'm going to do it before the foundation of the world? Or did he do it because he preordained that people will have a choice? And if they go this way, I respond this way. If they don't go that way, I respond another way. So he knew all along what our choices would be, but he did not preordain our choice. He preordained what his response to our choice would be. I see that. Then I do not believe if there's... I'm sure it's happening right now, some child being sold into sex trafficking and and raped and beaten to death by some crazed person. Now, I don't believe that God preordained that that person would do evil and would carry that out. To me, it's contrary to the nature of God and contrary to God calling that person to full responsibility for what they did and saying in passages and Jeremiah, the 18th chapter and things like you're doing things I never intended. I never thought of it. I never intended it. Not that he didn't foresee it, but no, this has nothing to do with me. 
All right. Um, I am going to go back over now to Facebook. Those are all on Twitter. I'm going to go back onto Facebook and answer as many more questions as I can here. Okay, I got it. Here we go. Here are the giant exclamation points. And I've just got to try to, I want to be fair here and answer the questions. All right, I'm getting there. Oh, I'm, I was just there and I clicked on the wrong link. Okay, here we go. Here we go. All right. What I want to do is go right back so that I do this in the order that people post it. And let's see here. All right. Okay. He was, this is where we are. This is where we are. Okay. Dottie asked this. Go for it. Are you descended from Jonathan Roslin Goforth? Dottie Goforth Rice. What are your thoughts on those who claim to be prophetic seers that see angels as orbs of light, which land on a near person to whom the seer is to deliver a divine message from God, depending on what color the orb is. Okay, first, I make zero doctrine of this. I don't care if a person has a track record of a thousand percent accuracy, right? With every word that they speak, I'm not going to draw a doctrine on it about angels and orbs, all right? Could it be that this is a way that the Holy Spirit shows somebody something? It could be, right? In other words, Somebody can, you're looking out in an audience and you just see, well, that person's really focused. That, and somebody else, they read body language much better. They see that, right? Well, that's just in the natural realm. Could it be that God shows somebody something? There's nothing in the Bible that tells me that something like this can't happen or won't happen. All right? However, however, let me, let me be as clear as I can. If that person, I want to repeat this, is completely accurate. I'm still not going to draw a doctrine from that about angels, orbs of light, zero. Nor am I going to look for that or expect that. That's number one. Number two, the moment they start telling me they're beginning revelation from angels, I stop listening. All right. It's, if, if you're, you're going to teach all this, you may say, uh, uh, the angel of the Lord spoke this word to me from God. Okay. Well, now I'm going to test it like everything else as if it was a prophecy. Okay. A prophecy could be delivered theoretically by an angel that happens in the Bible. Fine. But I'm going to test it. The moment you get into anything esoteric based on your track record of calling people out with these amazing words is the moment I'm going to say, hey, go back to the Bible. Go back to the Bible. Maybe the Lord is showing you this a certain way. Have you ever looked out in the crowd and it's just like God highlights somebody to you? That could, there are ways he could do it. I'm not going to throw that out just because it sounds out there, but I'm not going to base anything on that. If it's a true prophetic word, wonderful. Praise the Lord. And I'm going to be edified by that. And that's the extent of it. I'm not going to be thinking about angels, orbs, any of that. Nor would I think that a wise person would talk about that a lot. If that's how God shows you things, wonderful. But you don't need to be going out and teach. We don't need teachings on angels and orbs. We do not need teaching on angels and orbs. Teach on what the Bible says about angels, sure, by all means. All right. Um. Cynthia, did Adam and Eve go to heaven? I heard a preacher on television said he did not. We don't know. How would that preacher know? We don't know. We have no clue from scripture. Sorry. Sean, who are you raising up to replace you on the radio? No one. I'm doing my best to raise up thousands and thousands of of students and seminarians and believers around the world and pastors and leaders and others that we impact and influence to carry on with many of the things that God's put in my heart to equip them for revival, to equip them for 
gospel-based moral and cultural revolution to equip them for Jewish ministry. But I don't look at this radio broadcast must continue after me, something God gave me to do, and it's built around who God made me. And I don't feel like it has to continue. Uh, we've got all books out. We've got articles out. We've got multiplied thousands of hours of material available for people. And and by God's grace, I want to run hard for decades ahead. So uh, I wouldn't even think about raising up a substitute in that regard. I'm, I'm getting more energy and vision by the day. But the goal is to raise up an army that could do things I could never do in America and all around the world. And that, of course, has been happening for years with grads we've helped raise up and pour into. Uh, so we've helped impact people who are culture warriors today. We've helped impact people who are doing their own podcast. We've helped impact people who are sharing the gospel on the mission field or serving as as lawyers and, and standing for righteousness or pastoring churches or or engaging in Jewish apologetics. In fact, we've been able to have a great impact on, on the, the new generation of those doing Jewish apologetics. But I don't feel like this has to continue after me. Uh, it's not like a local church who am I turning the, the church over to. This is something where by God's grace, we raise up an army. And by God's grace, I do this radio show as long as he wants. Could be for decades ahead. Um, and then from there, whatever the Lord wants, if Jesus hasn't come yet, then hopefully we've sowed a whole lot of seeds and a whole lot of soil that will last in the generations that follow. appreciate the question. All right. We've got time for a few more questions on the other side of the break. And I've got some really interesting ones that I want to get to. So thank you for each and every one of these questions. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on The Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us. Our last segment on our Ask Me Anything shows this week. I hope you've been enjoying it. I just wanted to give folks the opportunity to ask every kind of question. And uh, some of my location traveling, ministering, to do live broadcasts. We couldn't do live video at the same time. We thought, well, let's, let's pre-record these, take your questions. And, and then, uh, we've got so much time also next week, talk about the elections and everything else. And great show tomorrow. Almost the entire debate you're going to get to hear Rabbi Shmuley and me and see if you're watching on did Jesus die for our sins? Isaiah 53. Okay. Back, back to your questions. Um, all right. Tell you what, there's one more from Dottie. I didn't want to do two, but, but I have this in front of me. Two from the same person. I hear some Christians refer to the Holy Spirit as Holy Spirit without the, like a name. Is though just part of our English translations or is this a proper biblical way to refer to the third person of the Trinity? Biblically in Hebrew and Greek, both are possible. Ruach HaKodesh in Hebrew is the Holy Spirit. And that's how you'll normally have it. But in Greek, uh, you can have, say, the name Jesus or the Jesus. Or it could be named Michael or the Michael. You can have the definite article in front of it. So you have Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit in Greek. You have both. And uh, therefore, it could go either way. So some people refer to Holy Spirit as a name. That's biblically correct. I've been in the habit for 50 plus years of referring to the Holy Spirit, which is also biblically correct and the more common. But both are acceptable scripturally. Mason. Hey, Dr. Brown, in light of Christ canceling our debt on the cross and being the propitiation for our sins, I've heard godly Christian leaders say all our past, present, and future sins are forgiven, while other godly leaders said every sin is only forgiven after we repent for them day by day, which is true. 
Is there at all a sense in which both ideas of forgiveness are true, but the definition of forgiveness differs in each case between the legal, canceling a debt, and relational, uh, mending a hurt relationship, understanding of forgiveness? Okay, I treat this at great length in my book, Hyper Grace. If you never read it, because your question is a sophisticated question, you might want to read it, Hyper Grace, or in shorter form, The Grace Controversy. You want to dig deeper? Hyper Grace. The Grace Controversy was just translated into Polish. All right, just mention that. Okay, number one, the moment you are saved, God forgives every sin you ever committed and puts you in the forgiven column. But he does not forgive your future sins in advance so that you don't need to confess or ask for forgiveness. That is the fundamental error of hypergrace. Did Jesus pay for all of our sins on the cross? Yes, past, present, future. Have we run up a debt for something we didn't spend yet? No. The debt of everything we did against God is canceled at the cross. So the moment we're saved, the debt of everything we did wrong up to that moment is canceled. We are made right with God. We are declared righteous. We are set apart as holy. We are called sons and daughters of God. We are now joint heirs with the Messiah. And we are put in the forgiven, saved column. At that moment, the guilt is gone. But it doesn't mean, as hypergrace teachers teach, that if if I commit some terrible sin a month later, rob a bank, that the Holy Spirit will not convict me because I'm already forgiven, that the Holy Spirit will not lead me to confess because I'm already forgiven. No, the Holy Spirit will convict me and I will be prompted to confess my sin to God. It is not the forgiveness of salvation, but as you say, the forgiveness of relationship, hence in the Lord's Prayer. If we don't forgive others, God won't forgive us. It doesn't mean for salvation. It does mean relationally. Although we could harden our hearts to a point by refusing to forgive and becoming so bitter that we we simply deny the lordship of Jesus and walk away from him, in which case it could cost us our lives and our souls. But again, all sin is paid for at the cross. But what does it say in 2 Peter 1? That those that backslide forget that they were forgiven of their former sins. And that's why 1 John 1, 9 is present tense. If we confess our sins, this is ongoing, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So once and for all forgiveness of salvation, then ongoing forgiveness in our relationship with God. It is unbiblical and dangerous to say that if you are truly saved, the Holy Spirit will never convict you of sin and you never have to confess your sin dangerous, wrong, false doctrine. It is also wrong to say if you don't confess every sin that you can go to hell. Also a wrong, false doctrine that is dangerous. So I confess when I'm aware. There are sins you and I commit. We have no idea we committed. Have, have you ever walked past someone and how could you be so rude? I was trying to talk to you and you didn't even talk to me and I looked right at you. It's like, I didn't even know it. Well, maybe you saw them out of the corner of your eye, but you were too busy. Or or maybe you acted in such a way you thought was fine, but really was not fine. You were just immature and, and, and it was carnal. Or, or, or I was lacking in compassion today. Or when I prayed, I, I didn't pray with focus and I'm, and I'm too busy to notice it. God forgives us and cleanses us all the time because we're seeking to honor him and do what's right. And we're coming to him with our whole life, even if we don't know every sin. But if I'm aware of a sin, Of course I confess it. Uh, What kind of relationship is there if I don't? 
Okay. Um, Denise. Hi, Dr. Brown. How do you respond to the various manifestations of the Holy Spirit? For example, slaying of the Spirit, shaking, yelling, etc. I've heard that some of these manifestations, the trembling, shaking, to be specific, are from a satanic influence called Kundalini. I cannot find any examples of these manifestations in the Bible except for in Revelation, where John stated that he fell as a dead man. Just would like your opinion. Thanks. The whole idea that just because something looks like something that happens in the world or happens with yoga or in Hinduism or in another religion, therefore it must be of the devil, is bogus. The whole idea that if someone is shaking under God's power, that that's a Kundalini spirit is bogus. I heard this endlessly during the Brownsville revival. Now, let me sort this out, okay? Jonathan Edwards, the foremost theologian and philosopher in, in American history, in terms of being revered to this day, 1730s, 1740s, and the Great Awakening, had to defend what happened in the Great Awakening. The great Calvinist theologian who preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, the great intellect, Jonathan Edwards, had to defend against the critics who wanted to reject the Great Awakening because people were shaking and convulsing and falling, and his wife would go into trances for hours and hours and hours. In fact, I'm going to have a premier scholar on who's a professor at Yale University and is a Pentecostal believer from Poland, a brilliant man, uh, have him on the air one of these days to talk about these very things, revival and unusual manifestations. It happened in the days of Whitfield. It happened in the days of Wesley. It's happened in famous revival movements around the world. Why? Because people get overcome by the presence of God. Why was all of Israel, why were they all shaking at Mount Sinai, the, every, the mountain shaking, Moses is trembling with fear. Well, that makes sense. Why do people cry out under conviction? Well, that makes sense. Why do people weep? Why do people collapse in the presence of God? They're overcome. Do you know how many people I've run into over the years, for decades, who'll tell me, and I went to Brownsville, I went to a meeting you were preaching during the revival days, and I didn't know about any of this stuff. And you touched me. You put your fist in my stomach and said, fire. And next thing, I, next thing I, I flew 20 feet through the air. You know how many people tell me that? And I got up a changed man. And I've been changed ever since. But what's the change? I love Jesus more. What's the change? I'm in the word more. What's the change? I turned away from sin and I'm living a holy life. What's the change? I got a burden for loss. Well, that's the Holy Spirit who did it. So what did Edward say? We ought not to limit God where he hath not limited himself. Edward said, if, if the Bible was meant to tell us, okay, when the Holy Spirit moves, the eyes will dilate. When the Holy Spirit moves, the body will shake. When the Holy Spirit moves, the temperature rises. He said, then he would have given us a book about physical anatomy and all of that. But that's not what the Bible is about. It's about guarding men's souls and guiding people into the truth. And introducing them to Jesus and helping them live holy lives. And that's what the watchmen watch for. So the fact that you have satanic parallels or satanic counterfeits proves nothing. There are satanic tongues. There are satanic prophets. There are satanic witch doctors. There are satanic people who do all these other things. There are satanic healers. Does that mean that we reject true divine healing? No. Because people are reading horoscopes and making predictions, does that mean that we reject true prophetic words? No. So we don't major on those things. We don't focus on them. We don't say, come here tonight, you'll be slain in the spirit. Come here tonight, you're going to fall and shake. No, no. 
We say, come here and meet God. Come here and have a fresh encounter with the living God. Come here and have your life changed by, by encountering God in worship, in the word, in prayer. And some people fall and some people shake. And the Bible is not going to tell us every specific way that every human being responds. Here, I've prayed for tens of thousands of people and have seen the power of God dramatically touch people, including those who didn't believe it was real. And hours later, they, they are stunned, sitting back in their hotel room, weeping, saying, this is real, I've encountered God. And I meet them decades later, and they tell me about the change that took place then that has remained to the glory of God and to get them more in the word and holier and loving Jesus and loving the lost. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Yet my wife, Nancy, who got saved 74, so me 71, her 74, so she's 48 years in the Lord. Now, she's never been slain in the Spirit once, never once. And I've prayed for her too. She's never been slain in the Spirit. And it's not a matter of spirituality, the more spiritual, the less spiritual. And I've gone to places that never, ever heard of it, knew it existed, and prayed. And next thing, the power of God's on them. They're laying on the ground, encountering the, encountering the Lord and getting up changed. That's what matters. And that's why we said like broken records in the Brownsville Revival, night in, night out. The true test of an evangelist ministry is five or ten years down the line. Now we can look over 20 years down the line and see the lasting glorious fruit. We tell people every single week, it doesn't matter whether you fall or shake, the question is when you walk out of this building, how are you living? That's what matters. As to how God moves, how people respond, may God be God and may things be done for His glory. Another program powered by the Truth Network.